Uh, we, um, unfortunately, we were not given uh, uh, microphones, so I'll speak very loudly, and I'll ask my colleagues to do the same. Uh, let me begin by making a few preliminary remarks, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, I, what, what's very clear from, from the presentation that you've made and from the dissertation that we've worked on together, uh, you've developed a very complex narrative. <laughs> Uh, we, have a, we have a North Atlantic project, a project that spans uh, the United States and, uh, and Britain and beyond. Uh, we have the story of the, uh, the development of the, uh, the rise of the American Episcopal Church uh, out of the uh, confusion of the American Revolution and the, uh, the American polemics between churches not just between uh, the uh, Episcopal Church and the Roman, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholics, but also between the other churches that in England would be called the dissenting churches. So, uh, so we're, we've got that level of complexity. Uh, you're dealing with a, an established historiography that you're attempting to overturn, that, uh, that there is a, uh, that there's a, a a critical element of the Oxford movement, uh, this concept of Eucharistic sacrifice and its place in the life of the Church of England that uh, did not travel west, as the standard historiography claims, but, uh, but actually was received through influential voices like Bishop Hobart. Uh, you've also uh, attempted to hint at, although it's projecting forward, and it's not strictly your project, that, uh, that this theology, the controversy that it created here in the United States, uh, resulted in a, uh, in, a, in a polemic that spanned 50 years and resulted in uh, apostolic curate and the, uh, the, the Position taken by the full issue by by uh, uh, Leo the Thirteenth that that uh, Anglican orders are absolutely null and utterly void. Okay. Now my big question is, who the hell allowed you to do that? <laughs> <laughs> that would be you. <laughs> that is a that is a that is an extraordinary extraordinarily expansive and uh, and complex project to undertake. Uh, and so I, I just want to say how much I appreciated the diligence with which you've, uh, you've taken on that task. Uh, it's been difficult to explain to others what the, uh, what the project entailed, but I think you've done a, a remarkable job of, uh, of taking something that's large geographically, chronologically, because it includes material from the early modern period, and touches on material that, that goes back to antiquity, uh, and yet uh, have managed to maintain a coherent uh, line of argument and a, and a, and a, clear, uh, uh, a clear set of convincing arguments for your case. So I, I'm, speaking, you. I'm speaking very much as, uh, as one who, who regards uh, uh, Dan Hanshi as, as an academic filius deliciousness, 
but I, but I, I would like to raise a, a few questions that you, uh, you, I'd like you to expand on. First of all, you, you really do hinge your much of much of your argument on a set of, uh, of, of theoretical speculations that began with uh, with Robert Wilkinson Smith's uh, religion of the Semites and uh, his speculations about the character of ancient uh, sacrifice uh, being a communion sacrifice and expiatory sacrifice and uh, and the the succeeding theorists through the course of the 20th century, uh, especially uh, Mary Douglas and, uh, and Nancy Jay. Please speak a bit more about why you find these theoretical models uh, of utility in a, uh, in a historical project that's exploring uh, a rather difficult theological concept. Okay, yeah. Um, you run the danger of being anachronistic using a, a, a much later theoretical model and trying to read it back onto earlier earlier disputes. Um, Robertson Smith's uh, project was to look at sacrifice in general, and, and the claim that he makes is that any culture that sacrifices accomplishes these things, um, these things with that sacrifice. Um, Mary Douglas corrects Smith a lot. And, and Mary Douglas is a Roman Catholic, and in her own work has applied these theories to, um, to the Eucharist. And so uh, her, her model works there. Other, other people have applied her theories and, and Smith's theories to um, Cyprian in particular, and, and show how Cyprian used participation in the Eucharist to, to establish the limits of the church, particularly with those people who apostatized in, in the persecution. Um, Cyprian tells the story of, of a young baby who was taken up to the to the altar by her caretaker and, and, and given a little bit of, of wine, unbeknownst to the parents. And the parents then brought this baby to church and tried to give it Eucharistic wine, at which point the baby screamed and vomited. And so Cyprian says, here's the, here's the limit. If you participated in one sacrifice, you can't participate in another. And so J. Patut Burns has used this same theory and applied it back on Cyprian, and, and it works. Another thing, that, another dissertation, not this project. <laughs> um, Robertson Smith was friends with, even though he was Scottish Presbyterian, he was friends with um, many of these ritualists who, who were part of the, the follow-on to the Oxford movement. And, and I, the biographies of him don't say much about this friendship, but I would love to know he was involved through this friendship with these disputes that led up to apostolic security. He would have been aware of those disputes, and I would, I would be interested to know how much of his theory he developed because of these disputes and, and you know, what he was trying to solve and look at there. So I think even though it's anachronistic, I think it works because um, you know, certainly applying it to Cyprian is a, is a different time than the 19th century, but it's, it gives such explanation to what was going on with Cyprian. Um, and, and it appears to give a, a fair amount of insight in, into, this, into this situation. Well, and, and just, to, just to sort of push back on that a little bit, I, I think one of the things that I find fascinating about, about Smith, I, he's a Cambridge, he's a, right. he's a professor of Arabic at Cambridge, 
uh, he, uh, he's clearly, although he's Scottish Presbyterian, he's clearly conscious of the controversy going on between Roman Catholics, Anglicans, and Episcopalians over this issue of Eucharistic sacrifice uh, uh, between those two traditions. And so to, I guess one of the questions that I'd like you to speculate about uh, is to what extent uh, was his scholarship on the ancient Semites right. influenced by the contemporary debates about Eucharistic sacrifice in his own time? I wish I knew that. None of his biographers have looked at that. There's a, a recent biography. They should. I know, they should. That's, that's another project. Uh, Bernard Meyer hints in a footnote um, that one of the ritualists was in fact the person who recommended um, Smith for his chair at Cambridge. Um, but the Cambridge Ecclesiological Society was going on, he would have known that. And, and I would love to get at the archives uh, of his work and see what kind of reference he was making, because I, I agree with you that I think his investigation, he was, he was kicked out of the, of, or silenced in the, in the Scottish Presbyterian Church for his writings on things like sacrifice and the Old Testament. He was friends with Wellhausen, who was doing his Old Testament stuff. And, and they thought that he was too progressive and too secular. Um, and so that's why he ended up at Cambridge. And so he's, he's writing right around those issues. Um, gets himself kicked out of the, the Presbyterian Kirk in Scotland. Um, and so I, I think that his investigation into those ancient forms of sacrifice was driven by these controversies in, in 19th century um, 19th century England, uh, and he he does not acknowledge an expiatory aspect to sacrifice. He says it's all communion. The expiation is somehow a corruption of that ancient form of sacrifice, and that would fit very well with a Protestant writing. I mean, that's one of the things Mary Douglas finds problematic about him is that he's anti-Catholic. And 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 in the early 20th century, there's a there's a whole uh, uh, people like Bishop Gore and. Um, uh, and just went out of my head. Uh, wrote about the Catholic corruptions of the early communion sacrifice and cited in the medieval period. In the medieval period, right? That the, and, and cited Smith as oh, Kirk Kidd. That's who I'm trying to think of. Um, and that became kind of a cottage industry in in English theology, saying that all of these horrible corruptions that the Eucharist removes sins. That was never the intent. It was always about about communion. And of course, here's Seabury, a good hundred years before, making exactly that claim. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that controversy was going on. And he, Smith, came down clearly on the side of communion is all that matters. The atonement is a later corruption. And Kidd takes that over and, and calls it that monstrous doctrine of the Catholic Church that the Eucharist removes sin. Okay. All right. Well, let me uh, let me move on to uh, to issues of, around uh, uh, ecclesiology because it's it's very clear that that, uh, that this is a, a central issue for uh, for the uh, uh, for the project that you've, you've done. Uh, perhaps uh, you know there, there's there's the issue of, of religious liberty, uh, the Episcopal Church trying to find. Uh, searching for some way of defining itself apart from establishment, which had been the heritage from the Church of England, uh, finding itself in functioning in, in kind of a marketplace of religions. And 
I guess turning a weakness into a strength, so to speak. Uh, say a bit more about, about how, uh, about the, the issue of defining boundaries of church in the context of, of this argument about Eucharistic sacrifice. So in, in Hobart's um, Companion to the Altar, uh, he wrote that as a, as a week-long devotion for someone preparing for communion. At the beginning of it, he, in the preface, he kind of lays out a Eucharistic theology, and then in, in each of the days he has a morning and evening um, meditation for the person preparing. And you get to um, Saturday morning, and his meditation asks the person to make sure that they are receiving communion from the right kind of person can't be going off to the Presbyterian Church because that ain't Eucharist. Um, it's got to be in the Episcopal Church. And that, of course, is what got the, the, the controversy started with, with Presbyterians. And so this writing back and forth, and, and he appealed to um, the primitive church to say that, you know, the church is defined by the bishop in communion with the diocese, and it's the Eucharist that defines the church, that the, the church finds its fullest expression gathered at the Eucharist. And in much of English theology, the Eucharist did not play that central a role. I mean, it was something that you went and did, but it was much more preaching, um, you know, proclamation of the gospel. And, and when sacraments were involved, it was, it was baptismal regeneration that marked the boundaries of the church. But for for Hobart and Seabury, it's, it's the, the church gathered around the bishop in communion that defines the church. And so that's, I think, a, a unique thing okay. for, for their theology. Uh, tell us a bit more about, about how that look, what that looks like as controversy on the Roman Catholic side. And I, and I mentioned this, I should say, uh, just, just to sort of make the point of, of the importance of this project, Locally, uh, the, uh, the primary uh, polemicist uh, was the former, uh, was the, was the, uh, the Archbishop of, of St. Louis, uh, Peter Kinder. And his predecessor in the controversy, the man who really led the controversy, was his older brother, uh, Francis Kinder. So, um, Peter Kinder entered controversy with John Henry Hopkins, not Hobart um, Hopkins. But it was, it was Peter Kenrick particularly who said um, in his book in 1841 that with the publication of the 1552 prayer book, Eucharistic sacrifice was gone from the, the English church. And, and he trots out the old nags head fable of, of Parker's but then says, oh, but that's not really the important argument. The important argument is no Eucharist in, in the Episcopal Church because of the 1552 book. And even though the 1662 book tried to bring it back in and he prints it in all capital letters, it was 100 years too late. Um, and so that the, the succession had been broken. And so for Kenrick, the succession had been broken by the lack of a Eucharistic uh, sacrificial understanding of the Eucharist. And then those polemics, in America get picked up in England and exactly that same kind of argument finds its way into, into the committee meetings leading up to Leo's Bull. But yes, it's this American polemic. I mean, that was published in 1841, well before any of these English polemics start showing up, which everybody assumes are coming from the Oxford movement and the ritualist movement. 
so, so in some sense, this is a story about, about debates that are going on at the periphery. Right. Uh, one imagines. Well, and, and, and being, and being uh, in the historiography uh, located at the centers of theological discourse. Right, and in Oxford and Rome. And, yeah, in both in both instances, the assumption is that oh, America, it's you know the hinterlands. There's no real debate going on there, um, and so it doesn't become real until it shows up at Oxford or, or Rome somewhere. And in fact, the, the debates predate anything that's published on the other side of the Atlantic. And, and you know, so that the American Church by name, both. Roman Catholic and Episcopal, by nature of the of the of the political situation, have to develop new new arguments for their existence. Okay. I think I'm going to uh, to, to turn the uh, the questioning over to uh, uh, Dr. Knuckles' uh, proxy, uh, <laughs> Professor uh, Professor Sullivan. Uh, if you wouldn't mind reading his opening statement and. Uh, I would like to begin by saying thank you, Dan, for um, what I thought was a very clear, concise presentation of what is, as Dr. Parker noted, a complex and broad-ranging and, I think, very important dissertation. Thank you for that. Um, I will now take up the voice of Dr. Knuckles and he does open with some overall comments on your dissertation, and he writes, This is a very well-written, structured, presented, and argued dissertation, and clearly based on deep research, as well as serious theological reflection and historical insight. It has been a privilege to read. The whole approach and methodology is particularly interesting, as it utilizes theology and history in a potentially very fruitful way. The candidate is refreshingly aware of the importance of historical context, an awareness too often lacking in theological treatments of historical subjects. I do have a few niggles about the dangers of over-egging evidence and occasionally some speculation uh, that Kenrick may have read Percival's appendix, etc. Um, but, he says, you make out a good case and you go over familiar ground with a fresh approach an acute sense of theological understanding. He thinks the key point that one would want to explore is the precise meaning of sacrificial character of the Eucharist and how this meant different things to different churchmen. He says he had not previously appreciated just how advanced Seabury was in his Eucharistic theology. However, the following points should be considered should be considered in the light of constructive criticism, or rather, suggestions whereby the argument might be rendered still more persuasive, if not conclusive, and hopefully, thesis overall enriched and strengthened as a result. And therefore, he asks, he thought, perhaps you may have put too much emphasis on Eucharistic sacrifice as the guarantor of, apost of apost apostolicity and maybe did not take into account the broader Oxford movement emphasis on Catholicity. And he would like to know how he might take account of that broader emphasis. Good point. Um, yeah, I ignored that. <laughs> it was complex enough. Um, Teresa Berger has written a, a really good book recently in German on um, 
sort of the, the liturgical thought of, of the Oxford movement. And she points out, really interestingly, that even um, the movement's emphasis on holiness of life, I mean, many of these people, like Pearl Fruit, wore a hair shirt and they fasted and, and you know, um, emphasized the sort of disciplinary aspect of the, of the, the Church of England in a way that had not been done before. She says that even, even that has its ecclesiological um, purpose in, in the Oxford movement, showing that holiness is one of the marks of the church. And so she walks through those marks of the church, um, showing how the, the Oxford movement uh, used what they were doing, you know, preaching was, was part of it. Um, I kind of felt like that ground had been, had been covered. Um, I probably should have made it clear that I thought her work, uh, her work did that. But when she gets to the Eucharist, she completely misses the sacrificial aspect of it. Um, she talks about Eucharist in, in, in Oxford movement piety as kind of linking it to the, to the rest of the European churches and, and the emphasis on frequent celebration um, being part of the Catholic emphasis. But she doesn't talk about the sacrifice. Neither of the other two uh, monographs on the Eucharistic thought of, of the movement cover that much at all. They cover the real presence. That becomes very, very important, but not the Eucharistic sacrifice. And so I, I felt like I was plugging a hole by concentrating just on the, on the Eucharistic sacrifice, that the rest of that has been done. And maybe I need to say, see Berger's work to, to get a, a sense of that. Dr. All through the history of the English church and, and well before the 1820s and 30s, but what struck me in reading them is that um, it, it wasn't central to the definition of church as church. Um, Dobney, Charles Dobney was the, the, the high church divine just before the Oxford movement that most people referred to in, in his uh, insistence on baptismal regeneration and on the nature of the church and the apostolicity of the church. And, and he wrote a two-volume work called uh, Guide to the Church and, and Appendix to the Guide to the Church. And you read that whole work, and the Eucharist shows up hardly at all. And when it does, it shows up um, as a matter of conformity, that you have to go off and get Eucharist at a, a, a you know, bona fide Church of England church in order to vote in Parliament, you know, the, the, the Corporation of the Test Acts. It plays very little uh, role in, in, in any sense of the economy of the of salvation, and so certainly there were there were English divines that did. But when in the 1820s and 30s the the understanding of, of the established church being the religious aspect of the nation just disappears forever, you've got now the English church having to, to understand itself in a in a pluralistic setting it becomes much more, the Eucharistic sacrifice becomes much more essential in defining the church as church. Couldn't depend on other, other ways of defining the church, on, on conformity or, or the 39 articles or, or any of that. And, and so certainly they do, but I, I, in reading them I didn't get the sense that it, it carried the same kind of freight that it did for the American church and for the, the Tractarian. Dr. Douglas points out that 
Anglican apologists for apostolic succession uh, generally had a monarchical view of the Episcopate, not necessarily political. And they objected to the American inclusion of the laity um, in the councils of the church, as you pointed out in your presentation. Um, Ghost made the point that Anglican apologists for the apostolic succession appealed to the primitive church quite as vigorously as American apologists. Um, perhaps, should you refine your argument by stating how the American understanding of the episcopate and appeal to the primitive church differed from the English, if both English and Americans are <laughs> I'm seeing my bishop grin. <laughs> It is a great question. It remains the biggest difference between the two churches. Uh, we elect our bishops. Uh, they appoint them. Yeah, that... Um, no, no, I, I, I want to say more. Um, so, uh, the American church, and I think then the, the Tractarians afterwards, saw the authority of the church in the gathered Eucharistic community. And the English church continued and continues to some degree to see the authority of the church in that monarchical understanding of the episcopate, that the episcopate somehow guarantees the church. The, um, the, the high churchmen before the Oxford movement loved to talk about, uh, they quoted Isaiah 58, kings shall be your nursing fathers. and, and um, talked about establishment being for the protection of the church. Um, uh, one of them in the in the in his uh, coronation sermon for Queen Anne talked about how when Constantine you know took the church on and, and became its protector, they tended to see that as a good thing. In their appeal to the primitive church, the Americans unanimously saw Constantine as a catastrophe. Um, that when Constantine authorized the church, the church lost its nature as church. Um, they referred to the persecution of the church. I mean, Hobart talks about the church being empurpled by the blood of the martyrs rather than by the purple of Caesar. And, and he's much more interested in, in testifying, being a witness of, with the martyrs than he is with Caesar. That, that, that establishment is, is just a, a complete catastrophe. Um, and so they appeal to the primitive church for that, and they also appeal to the primitive church for the election of bishops. All of them go back to Cyprian and say, you know, Cyprian was elected by the laity. And, and so that we're doing it the right way, you're doing it the wrong way. And that, that remains the, the biggest misunderstanding between our churches in, in all of the stuff going on in the Anglican Communion is that none of the rest of them understand that we elect our bishops. And yeah, there's no there's no solution to that. It's just a misunderstanding or, or a difference. You spoke about Seabree's uh, encounter with the usagers and their influence on his uh, not only his Eucharistic thought, but actually the Eucharistic liturgies that were um, celebrated after his ordination in the colonies of the, the United States. Um, and Dr. Nambas points out that the usagers, with their understanding of a material elevation of bread and wine, 
and not of the body and blood of Christ, they understood themselves to be guarding thereby against the Roman Catholic error, as they saw, of transubstantiation. <laughs> so, how did Seabury and Hobart protect themselves from that error? Good question. Um, yeah, the, the usagers saw that what was being offered was just the bread and the wine, not consecrated. Um, Seabury was, in terms of, of the presence of Christ to the worshiper, Seabury was a virtualist. He saw that Christ was present by power and effect to the worshiper. But it's this other piece of, of Christ's presence to God in the Eucharist that, that he picks up you know, new in, in Protestant um, theology. Neither one of them is, is quite developed in their Eucharistic theology, Seabury or Hobart. They're both kind of occasional writers writing controversies or sermons or things like that. Um, I remember in, in um, a medieval seminar I had here, we were translating something by Bonaventure, and I was doing the bit on, on Eucharistic presence, and Bonaventure raises the question, so what happens if a mouse eats the wafer? Um, and, and, you know, is the real presence there for the mouse? And, and such a question would not have occurred to Seabury or Hobart. They were much more interested in that. What was happening for them in the Eucharist was that the church was offering itself as Christ under the elements of the bread and the wine. So that they weren't seeing the bread and the wine and their transformation into the body and blood as the central piece of what was happening. They were seeing the transformation of the church as the continuing incarnation. And, and Wilberforce finally, at the end of the Oxford movement, picks that up and writes that very, very clearly, that, that the real presence in the Eucharist, in the Eucharistic elements, is important so that Christ is present in the church, and it's the church that's being offered. And so Hobart saw transubstantiation as a real error because it located, you know, the action of the Eucharist in the elements, not in in the gathered community. And, and so he would have, he never worked out what way it was really present, but it, he was more interested in the presence of Christ in the church, expressed by the bread and the wine, than he was in some kind of substantial presence of Christ in, in the elements. So if I understand you correctly, because the focus of the Eucharistic theology um, is different between um, with the real presence in, in the church versus in the elements, would they, would Seabury Hobart in some ways not be worried about the dangers of giving an impression of falling into that error because the entire focus of, of their Eucharistic thought, their Eucharistic liturgy, moving in a different direction. Seabury dealt with it just briefly in a, in a work that he addressed to Presbyterian ministers. And, and he sort of says, you know, you might accuse us of transubstantiation, but let me assure you, we're not there. Um, Hobart dealt with it a little more directly in a couple of his charges. And He's just not real clear about that. Um, but yeah, he just sort of says, he, he says to his clergy, don't let people accuse you of Romanizing, of, of being Roman Catholic, because we don't believe in, in transubstantiation. 
And even, you know, even though we do accept this Eucharistic sacrifice, not everything that comes from Rome is immediately suspect. He said if that were true, then the Bible would be suspect um, because you know, Rome gave us the Bible. Um, and and uh, yeah, they're, not, they're just not very interested in it. They don't, they don't see it as the big deal. It's not part of the big debate that's going on for them. Thank you very much for that. I will um, cease speaking in the voice of Dr. Nuckles and pass the floor over to Dr. Nuckles. Thank you. Dan, thank you very much for the, uh, the honor to be able to read this. Uh, I, I did cut my teeth a little bit. It's far afield from what I
church, you're there for four hours, it's all preaching and singing, and, and maybe at the end we'll tack on a little Eucharist. Um, but it's, it's the 1662 English prayer book translated into more makes no sense to Americans. They come back and say, why was the invocation of the Spirit after we'd already taken communion? You know what? Um, I, I got interested in that, and, and Sudan, uh, Louis, was, was evangelized by the Church Missionary Society, which is a completely different branch of the Church than the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. Uh, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel um, was very much high church, sacramentally focused, CMS, very much preaching focused, you know, sin and redemption, personal Jesus kind of stuff. And so the theology in Sudan is very different, even though we have a relationship. And it, if you don't appreciate that difference, you just end up talking past each other. And, and I think so much of what happened in the, the disputes between dissenters, Anglicans, and Roman Catholics in 19th century England is that they were talking past each other. And, and it was in reading the American stuff with the lens of this sort of sociological uh, theory of sacrifice, that it became clear to me that Seabury was developing his Eucharistic theology in response to the political situation. He had to justify the existence of an Episcopal church, a church with bishops hated by the colonists. I mean, there are great political cartoons of people trying to poke bishops back on the boats, you know. Um, he had to justify those bishops. And so he had, to, he had to create a completely new justification, and he did it with Eucharistic sacrifice. And so it was that political context that led to his developing the argument, which then sort of led on to this, to this later dispute. And, and so, yeah, I'm with you. It's context content. But um, I think it, 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 it has has value in discussions today. If you don't know, if we don't understand the, the, the context in which the African bishops are making their statements, we get angry at what they're saying and, and want to cut off relationship with them. It's like, now wait a minute, they live in a different world. And if we don't understand that, we're never going to never going to be a community. Okay. Well then I'll, I'll take that as a segue. <coughs> historical history, theology, the historical History and then the theological. I have two questions for each one. Both of these are naughty questions that you are never supposed to ask when you're doing a dissertation. <laughs> Historical. You're looking at it, trying to figure what Bobart, Seabury, everyone else. You're trying to be listening to what they're saying, maybe naively, but try not to impose on them. What are they doing in their context? But I'm going to ask the historical question. Were they? Good historiographically, because they're coming out of their own contexts. And with my familiarity, when I look at Newman, everyone's coming from a point of view. And when I look at Newman and I see what he did with the Arians of the fourth century, I, on the one hand, can kind of be, all right, this is why he's doing it in his context. And then there is a part of me that says, come on. <laughs> you just can't say, fourth century heretic. And that's the guy that lives down the street. Right. <laughs> and, and, but that's what he is explicitly doing. So I'm asking you a question, Eliza. When you dealt with these people, how did you feel on the one hand listening to them, crafting what they're doing in their context, but then how did you step back and say, you just really can't do that? I mean, right. did, did you ever have yes. that? 
Yes. Um, Are you going to name names? <laughs> <laughs> they were clearly naive historians. Um, Hobart particularly had a very static view uh, of history, and, and you know makes the claim that four fifths of all Christians have been Episcopalians and had bishops, and you know that that proves the argument. And and he appeals to to these primitive writers. It's interesting that he, he appeals to not a single writer after Constantine, which is which is interesting. Um, Constantine is the end of it. Um, he appeals to them as if just quoting them was enough. But there's also something that's beginning to happen in Hobart that, that you see, I think, in much fuller flower later in the Oxford movement, and that is he's beginning to ask the question of what was their context? His understanding of the American church as persecuted, you know, the, the establishments of the colonies not being Episcopalian and them having to labor under, under these um, difficulties. He sees the American church as persecuted, and so he's looking at the primitive church as persecuted and beginning to see those connections there. So he's beginning to raise questions about why Ignatius wrote the way he did, why Cyprian wrote the way he did. But he's still pretty naive about it. You know, that 50 years later, with Dollinger and people like that, that becomes a really obvious thing. It's there in germ. But, but very, oh yeah, there were times you might say, you can't say that. <laughs> And, and part of the method, that's why I start out with historical theology, you try to actually, you don't make that kind of, you say, well, I'm going to listen to what he said, because that helps me understand, in that context, that theology, which then adds to the understanding. But then, I'm going to ask, actually, my last question, that is quickly, but it might be, take a little while to answer. So if you say, Seabarrier, Hobart, they're asking these questions of their context, and they're doing it sometimes naively, um, I'll ask them the same question of you. <laughs> and this is where the theology comes in. And in our dissertations, we're not allowed to then say, oh, in conclusion, I'm making claims about the world today. You're supposed to say, no, still self-contained. But what is your intention in doing historical theology in, in the theology for today? Because I assume you had some intention. I mean, you say Seabury, he got interested for this reason. So what's your research? reason and you've done all of this, but then what's the theological point that you're trying to make? The payoff. The payoff. That we're not actually, in conclusion, we're not allowed to really, or you're told not to put the payoff, but now you have a microphone. So, <laughs> so, so what, what's the payoff actually? That's, that, that's a really easy question for me to answer. Uh, well, then I might be done. <laughs> I entered this program for a very specific reason. Um, my, my training as a priest was unusual. Um, I was trained by an ex-Greek Orthodox priest who had a very different understanding of what the Eucharist is than do Episcopalians by and large. Um, and, and so what I do when I celebrate the Eucharist, I understand a little bit differently than, than a lot of other folks do. And I, I could not express that when, when I entered this program. I entered this program specifically to figure out what was different. And, and originally I intended to write on Cyprian because he was the first 
person in church history to write a treatise on the sacrificial character of the Eucharist. And to, I mean, he's the one that said you've got to mix water and wine. That's where the usagers got it. But then in reading Cyprian, I got to reading, um, there was a controversy between um, Scottish Presbyterians and Episcopalians, and both of them appealed to Cyprian. Um, and one of them said Cyprian was no more than a glorified presbyter, and the other side said, oh no, he was a real bishop. And, and so how that played out then in terms of, of Eucharistic sacrificial understanding in Scotland and England. And so I ended up then writing about Seabury and the Oxford movement because that question became so central, Eucharistic sacrifice. So I really, I really entered this program to answer the question, what am I doing at the altar? And um, I found myself one, one day um, we'd had a, a horrible suicide in the parish, and there was going to be no funeral, and so a bunch of us gathered on Wednesday night when we usually have the Eucharist, and, and we were in the church, and, and I ended up offering a Eucharist with special attention. And I said, gee, when did I become a Catholic? <laughs> what am I doing here? And, um, and I, got a, I got a library card to Slough and started reading books. Um, just randomly. And as I was writing this dissertation, I found myself taking out many of those same books, and I'd find my questions written in the margin and say, I know the answer to that question now. Um, so I had, I had pursued this to, to figure out what, what it is we understand about the Eucharist, what it is I understand about the Eucharist, if I'm going to teach, what is it that I want to teach? And, and so that's the, the theological payoff for me. Okay, um, so then maybe I'll point it a little bit more, and I know it's dangerous for <laughs> but uh, everyone else that we've gone through, you know, Seabury, Hobart, even Kenrick, um, the uh, Tractarian, the Oxford uh, people, it's all, you're trying to say that the sacrifice was not a tangential issue about ecclesiology, but something very central. So then, what is your theological bringing up to the present now? How does this research in the past and say, well, the theological we need to be considering this, you know, how does this impact the, uh, the ecclesiology today that's practiced, the theology that I have? And as you say, what I might be teaching, or, you know, what, what I will be doing uh, in, in church. So I would answer that by saying that, as I understand it, there's one reason only to go to church, and that's Eucharist. Um, that is to offer ourselves under the symbols of bread and wine as the gathered body to God. And, and if you're not going to church for that, then you can probably get what you're looking for somewhere else. And, and we say we're Eucharistically centered. The, the prayer book, the, the preface says, you know, Eucharist will be the central act of, of worship on a Sunday. But we don't say it's a matter of life and death. And, and for me, that's, you know, it's the only reason. And, and, and so that was the whole reason for this decree, was to figure out why, why that was for me. Well, I mean, and, and, and the uh, interesting thing that putting together in, in all the complexity, we can probably say that Hobart, Kendrick, Seabury, going all the way back to Cyprian, that's what theologians always try to do. Right. They always just say, well, why? Why do we actually have this behavior and not that behavior? Why are we right and they're wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to go that no, far. <laughs> but, but, but since I am familiar with Newman, right. 
problem. That's he had no problem. That's right. He could call that, anybody that, wrong. There was us and then all the dissenters. Right, 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 right. So, so within that, I mean, that is hopefully one of the things that you've contributed in the discipline of historical theology, saying in the long communion of saints and the tradition, both small t and large t, is that the answers have oftentimes changed. Right. But the driving questions always seem to be very... And, and ecumenically, you know, Newman and Moeller and others sort of contributing to, to what became Vatican II and, and its understanding of the Eucharist, how similar that is to this, that the authority of the church resides in the community gathered with its bishop to celebrate communion. And so ecumenically, how close we've come. You know, what's preventing the rest of it? Um, if that's where the authority of the church is. It's not in some imaginary chain of hands being laid on the heads down through the ages as, as if some stuff were throw, flowing through a pipeline. It's, it's this other thing. And so, yeah, my question is, how does that make for the authority of the church? All right, the examiners have had their say. Uh, it's now time to open uh, the questioning of our candidate to, uh, to the floor. So uh, we would like to, uh, to field questions that you would like to raise in the light of what you've, uh, what you've heard uh, and what you, uh, the views that you may have brought to this occasion, questions that you may have brought. Come on. Inside themselves. 
That's a really good question. Um, one of the real tragedies of the evangelization of Sudan has been the suppression of their own forms of sacrifice. Um, if someone is sick, it must be because the ancestors are upset. And so what they will do is they will take a chicken out to the tomb and, and kill the chicken and have a picnic. Well, gosh, that looks like Eucharist to me. Um, you know, in the communion of saints, and, and that has been suppressed in the church. And, and so they see Eucharist as, as kind of this little add-on um, to the rest of it, and, and I would love to have the opportunity to, to work with Bishop Stephen and, and, and other people there and say, let's go back and reclaim parts of your own culture that would help you understand what we mean when we do Eucharist rather than it being this little sugar wafer that they buy in the market and this god-awful orange soda that they use. I mean, you know, let's go back and, and, and understand, you know, we're not going to use the blood of a chicken anymore, but how is this like what we do when we do Eucharist? And, and by suppressing that, I think we just we perpetrated a travesty on them. We, we, we took away parts of their culture that were very valuable and would have been seeds of the gospel as, as, as you know, Justin would have said. So contextual. And contextual, right. It, it, we took this European form of Christianity and, and plopped it right on top of it. Once. We got Warren here and then we'll come back to Lydia. I know that uh, you're very interested in John Zulius. <laughs> so, uh, you're Ecclesiology, how do you see that relating to this project? Well, he argues much the same thing. I mean, he, in, in his book, Being as Communion, when he talks about <coughs> ecumenism, he says, you know, we've made the mistake by um, centering the, the validity of, of the orders on some sense of, of succession of magic hands um, doing things down the ages, but that instead the authority comes from the community gathered at Eucharist with, with its bishop. And, um, and he even goes on to define personhood in that way, that we're not really persons unless we're in Eucharistic community. That makes it a matter of life and death. Um, but does he uh, focus on Eucharistic sacrifice? That is that what I'm curious about. Yes. Yes, he does. Um, not explicitly to the extent that, that, that I do, but in his writings about Eucharist, it's very clear that what the church is doing is offering itself. He, he comes at it from a very Trinitarian point of view, that, that, that God freely gifts God's self, the first person in the Trinity to the second, and then gifts God's self to creation through the Spirit, and that creation gifts itself back to God through the Spirit as the, as the second person of the Trinity in the Eucharist. And so there's very much that that sense of oblation of self, oblation of creation back to the creator, which I would call sacrificial. And, and he links that with Christ's death on the cross, the, the second person of the Trinity offering God's self back to God through that event. And so that the Eucharist becomes the same thing as the cross, only it's this time the church as, as the second person of the Trinity enlivened by the Spirit being offered back to God. Does that 
answer your question. Okay. <laughs> Lydia. I have two sort of ecumenical, while we're doing the up-to-date questions. Um, one of them is um, how you see the theology of Eucharist that you have, Eucharist and apostolicity that you have propounded, um, as harmonizing with our existing um, shared communion relationships with Protestant churches, um, and then the, a, a sort of unrelated but equally ecumenical question, I hope, is um, how far do you see the person of the presider at the Eucharist um, as needing to share the gender um, of Jesus? <laughs> Let me answer the second question first. Um, In, in much Eucharistic theology, the, the, the presider functions as altar Christus, as the, as the other Christ. What I, what I understand it is that the community is another Christ, and that the presider simply functions as the representative for the community in the expression of its prayers. And so the gender of the presider doesn't matter. I mean, the female can represent the community as well as a male can. Um, and so it's not that the, the presider has to share in the nature of Christ in any other way than the presider shares in, in the Christness of, of, of the community. Um, our ecumenical relationships. Um, so as soon as you disconnect apostolicity from that succession of magic hands going back to Christ um, and define it in other ways, you don't have to worry about did these Lutheran bishops get their, their ordination in the right way, or do they even have bishops? Um, the question is, you know, the authority is located in the, the community gathered at the Eucharist, hopefully in the presence of its bishop, and, and um, that's where the authority comes from. It comes bottom up as much as top down. I guess my question was how, um, if they knew that they were participating in the uh, sacrificially yes and I don't think it has been considered very well um, because understood as a sacrifice of Christ they certainly wouldn't see it but I think understood as a sacrifice of the community of itself to God they would they would see that that was okay I mean they would they would certainly get that. I mean, and when I attend the, the joint service we have with the Lutherans, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable that they end their Eucharistic prayer right after the words of institution. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, there's there's more to come. But as long as we're understanding ourselves offering our common life in this act, then what the words are, I guess, there's no magic for me in the words. It's the offering of, of, the, of the life of the community. Does that get at what you're asking? Anyone else? What was that comment? He, he said, I'm going to have to talk to a lot of people after this. <laughs> yes? I was wondering, in the whole debate leading up to the Oxford movement, how they use the, the sacrifice as the people offering themselves up, how much they tied the belief of the people, or maybe put it another way, their understanding of that process 
in the process itself, in the sacrament? How much is their own intention or understanding or belief involved for the people in this debate? That's an excellent question. Um, many of the, of the sort of later generation of the Oxford movement did come to see the presence in the elements as being central. I mean, Eucharistic adoration became a big deal, and, and there was a tendency to disconnect that from any um, any sense on the part of the community of their participation in that. I mean, all of a sudden we have you know benediction with the Blessed Sacrament, um, but always in in those first writers, Keeble and Pusey there was this very clear sense of the church offering itself. And I think in some of the ritualist movements, some of that, that grand ritual was meant to heighten that sense. Now, it, it got sidetracked a lot and, and, and became Fufara for the sake of Fufara. Um, but I think we're coming back to that. I think we're coming back to being the community offering its common life in the worship. So there was a real danger, um, what we called missiles and millinery. Um, you know, having their pretty garments and all of that kind of stuff, which which none of those early people ever did. I mean, you know, uh, Newman never never celebrated in anything but a surplus. Um, he wasn't interested in Eucharistic vestments, and so there's a there's a real temptation to get distracted in that kind of high church stuff, and, and that's not the point. And we need to remind ourselves again and again and again that that's not the point. Sister Joan. I recently was reading some of Sebastian Moore's work, and I guess Bernard Lonergan is one of his teachers, but one of the things that came through in my Catholic background um, was the um, sort of argument or debate between Ambrose and Augustine. I guess Ambrose baptized Augustine, but that Ambrose wanted to follow the transubstantiation theology, and Augustine was into the Paul Pauline right. uh, uh, theology of no, you're not, that you are the body of Christ. And uh, it brought up such newness to me. I wondered if this is something that was, something that came through in, in your, in the Oxford movement, or uh, if this is even, it, it, one doesn't seem to negate the other, but the emphasis in our Catholic way has come through. Right, and, and the, the people of the Oxford movement were very, very careful always to avoid transubstantiation for that very reason, that they didn't want to fall into that old debate. Um, what we're talking about is not transubstantiation. Even though we're doing Eucharistic adoration, this is not sort of the corpus, the corpus of Christ locked up in a little box, um, that this, this reflects the community. Now, there are dangers, like I said, of, of sort of getting distracted into that. But yeah, they did they did refer to those earlier debates in, in their writings. The Americans, not so much. Like I said, Hobart didn't cite anybody past Constantine. He very rarely cited Augustine, almost never, because that was after Constantine. But the, the Oxford movement people certainly did, and certainly preferred the Augustinian um, view to Ambrose's view. Although some of the vanguard, some of the people out there on the edges, did begin to talk about transubstantiation and you know benediction and saw that as, as Christ being present there in the bread. But that did be that they did refer to those debates even then. Yeah. I want to ask a question that might be somewhat tangential. 
it's my understanding, and so of my reading of the Oxford movement, that, uh, that, a, that a piece of, of that movement was very much regards or, or went towards mission. Uh, East London and, and uh, um, other, other places um, in England. Um, and I also know that you're in a congregation that is driven by its understanding of mission inside of its context of the community in which it uh, in which it resides. I'm wondering how your understanding of Eucharist uh, helps drive that mission, or in some way takes us away from it. Um, this will mean something to the Episcopalians in the room. Um, I was formed Eucharistically at the um, Church of St. John the Evangelist in Boston, the old Cowley Church, and so very much that that sense of mission. It, it wasn't really the Oxford movement folks that were into that, that East London mission, it was more the ritualist people who came after them. I mean, Pusey kind of lent his name to that, um, but it, the purpose for it was to, to, to be attractive to, to folks who had no, no beauty and, and kind of get them into, into church. And, and so my sense of mission has always been driven by that understanding of Eucharist, that what we do is we set a table and invite folks. And, and what we present on the altar is, is our connection to the life of the world, that we're presenting the life of the world. And so, you know, our, our parish nurse ministry there at Advent is the same thing that we do at, at the Eucharist. We set a table and invite folks to come. And, you know, they come for exercise class, but they stay for coffee and bagels and, um, you know, and, and community that forms community. So it, it's, it's the way we're formed into a community around that that Eucharist around that understanding. That is, I think, what salvation is. It's, it's taking us out of our isolation and, and hooking us up to to that fuller expression of life that is community. Emily, you had a question. Yeah, I was, you were so specific about saying the community gathered for you, ideally in the presence of the bishop. Can you clarify the importance of the bishop? Sure. Um, Um, without without our relationship to our bishop we run the risk of becoming very parochial and and bishops do two things for us they connect altar to altar I mean Bishop Bishop Smith is going to visit Advent on the 26th of February and, and he will sit in the chair I usually sit in when he comes. Um, but then connect diocese to diocese through the councils of the church. And, and if there's some way of making those connections, I mean, you know, the, the, the Presbyterians don't have bishops, but they do meet in, in presbyteries and, 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 you know, have some way of, of keeping us from becoming entirely parochial. And so that's, for me, the importance of the bishop is that it connects us Temporally to a larger succession and, and you know, on a horizontal plane to, to a, a wider context. So that what you know what Advent does is is great and wonderful. But if we just kind of were left to ourselves, we might not ever see our connection to anything larger. And, and his presence there reminds us that we're connected to the city of St. Louis and not just this little suburb of Crestwood. So that's the importance for me. And, and then, you know, his presence at Lambeth and, and those other councils connects us to that much broader, that much broader picture so that we, that we don't see the body of Christ as just this little local community gathering. 
that's the expression of it, but not yet. Yeah. Um, I just like to add one thing about the, the historical theology component is that with what Dan said is that it takes the historical connection backwards, but then also in the contemporary, the horizontal is, is that it is that context that all the contexts come together. And if you study, study the early church, when I teach it to my undergrad, it's always fascinating. You know, well, what caused you know the whole Nicene problem? Well, Arius was trained in Antioch and got this schooling and these words, and then he went to Alexandria and started interpreting in those ways. So these bishops were then that community was meeting with these other bishops, and unfortunately, over and over again, I assume with the Sudanese bishops and meet with these. It's, right. it's the same thing. Right. So one of the things that Dan's saying is like, comes back, I think, with my opening comments, historical theology, is that, yeah, we're looking backwards of all those contexts, but then we also have to look horizontally that globally there's other contexts. And it ultimately, I, I just think theologically with what Dan's saying, if you call it a table or a sacrifice or, or whatever you'd like to call it, it's bringing about a community. And it, usually a community, you don't always necessarily agree. But you have to work it out. And you have to listen. And that's one of the things that like, I think, and speaking as a Catholic bishops are, are important, or any leader in any, is that hopefully it gets them out of the context into another context where ultimately they're listening. And then they'll say something, and they'll try to go back and forth because we're in a very difficult... Right. And I, Christianity is difficult because you're trying to be a community that says it goes back, but then also you're trying to be global. So the bishops have a very hard job. Where did you say that? Bishops have a very hard job, and when they listen to their theologians... There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, and I, and I think the difficulty that we're having in the Anglican Communion is that you know, while the primates get together you know, more often, the, the bishops only get together once every 10 years. And, and unless we have sort of the, the dialogues that we're allowed to have with Louis, we just don't come on, you know, a week every 10 years doesn't bring you a deep understanding of someone else's context. They're telling me I have time for one more question. Is there one more person? That, yeah, Eric. Not Eric. Mike. I'm struck by um, Peter Knopf's question with respect to um, the idea of Catholicity mm -hmm. and how um, your understanding of sacrifice right. uh, in, in the movement may or may, or may be a little bit separated from the idea of Catholicity. Right. And it seems to me like Catholicity for the Tractarians had to do with continuity with the past and history because they were a minority in the church. So a big part of their project was a, a, a reimagination of, of church, and that involved a reimagination of the past. So to me, that, that makes me think that you know the magic hands are pretty important in that regard. So I was wondering if you could maybe Yeah, I would say that the succession, the idea of succession, was more important to the Tractarians than it was to the Americans. Um, the Americans argued the other way around. Um, I don't think it would have been a problem 
for Seabury or Hobart if it had been proved that Matthew Parker was not validly consecrated. That, I mean, Seabury says very specifically in one of his sermons, and that he's talk, commenting on the letter to the Hebrews, where the writer says, we have an altar to share that they cannot share. And he says, now an altar implies a sacrifice, and the sacrifice a priesthood, and the priesthood a succession. So that the implications run the other way. It's not the validity of the consecration that makes the Eucharist valid. It's the validity of the Eucharist that makes the succession valid. So Seabury is going the other direction. And I think the Tractarians later come to, to a similar kind of understanding. But if initially, it's those magic hands. I mean, Newman's Tract 1, you know, it's your apostolical descent um, that gives you your authority. And, and so for them, it was that. I think it was never quite so important for the Americans. Does that get at what you're, you're asking? Yeah. The procedure at this point is uh, is for the committee to uh, to have just a brief moment uh, consultation. But before we do that, I uh, I think this is an appropriate moment. I hope to uh, to make both a, a larger ecumenical quest, uh, observation and a personal observation, if you don't mind. Uh, Ecumenically, I think it's very significant that this dissertation was done at a Catholic Jesuit university, uh, that the, uh, the examiners are all Roman Catholics, including Professor Knuckles uh, and his stand-in. Uh, we all read with, with great appreciation and admiration the scholarship, uh, but also uh, with real appreciation for the opportunity to understand uh, a, a very important aspect of the ecclesiological tradition of the American Episcopal Church. Uh, so we're deeply grateful for that. It's all the more important because this is happening in the diocese of the man who originally resurrected the argument that was adopted by Leo XIII, who, uh, who issued the bull, uh, Apostolic Curia, declaring Anglican orders to be absolutely null and utterly void. I bring that up uh, not to sort of rub anything in anyone's nose, but, but, to, but to, to, as a segue into a personal comment. Uh, I, uh, I was raised in, in the American Holiness tradition as a Wesleyan, uh, and uh, have had my own journey into the Roman Catholic experience. I won't mention Dan's experience in the holiness tradition. You'll have to ask him yourself. Uh, but, but part of my journey toward uh, the Roman Catholic experience, part of my growth, initial experience of, of sacramentality, happened in the context of a little Episcopal church in rural uh, western New York. And it happened around uh, the my incomprehension of the prayer of confession uh, and the experience of absolution in the liturgy uh, in, in that church. I remember going, being very upset by this prayer because my tradition taught me something very differently about, about the nature of sin and, uh, and whether Christians could sin. And 
I found myself coming back because of my sense of frustration and upset about the notion that Christians could come to liturgy, ask for forgiveness of sin, and receive what is my first experience and understanding, experientially, of Eucharistic theology. I had a what I consider to this day a kind of encounter with Christ at the Eucharist that I've never forgotten. And it took me on a journey into a study of the history of Christianity. It's really the origins of my desire to become a historical theologian. Uh, but more importantly, as Dan's talked about this, uh, I experienced the theological construct that he talks about in his dissertation that was developed by Siberia and Hobart. So I, I feel very deeply uh, uh, an affection for the American Episcopal Church, for the Anglican tradition, though I'm a, a, a practicing Roman Catholic. And I, while I understand and uh, have the greatest respect for magisterial teaching in my own church, I know what I experienced. And I'm very grateful for it. So, with that, uh, the committee will uh, will adjourn for just a moment, and we'll come back.